Good morning. My name's Sean. I'm a teaching pastor here at Cypress Creek Church, and I am privileged to get to hang out with you guys this morning. We are in this series on the royal family, the imperfect royal family, which brings me a lot of encouragement as I read that. I don't know how God decided what to put in the Bible and what not to, but I am certainly thankful that he left it, left in some of these stories of these guys uh, falling short and failing and having challenges because it just makes it more real and more applicable, I think, to, to my life and, and to the rest of us. And we've been working our way through. So Pastor Jose, a couple of weeks ago, talked about uh, Jacob and his family and how it was a picture of God's restoration and bringing family back together. And that's what God does. He restores us. And then Last week, he talked about Ruth and Boaz and how it is a picture of God's redemption and Boaz's willingness to be generous and then ultimately to create this uh, redemptive story for, for Ruth that continued the lineage that ultimately leads to Jesus. And that's what Jeremiah was, was prophesying about in this verse that Jose went over last week with us is this thought that, that from this line of David, we were going to end up with this savior who would rule and reign over Israel and Judah and ultimately the entire world. Well, David is a great picture of that. David, uh, the righteous branch, he actually, today, that's who we're gonna unpack is David and how he exemplifies God's reign. Well, uh, David's an interesting character. There's more written about David. There's, there's two, so the most written about character in the Bible is Jesus, and the next most written about person in the Bible is David. There's a lot in there, a lot we could cover. First Samuel, second Samuel, first Chronicles, second Chronicles, parts of Kings, and then 73 Psalms. So whatever your lunch plans are, you may wanna put them on hold. We got a ways to go this morning, all right? Lots of ground to cover. But the interesting thing is between Jacob and Ruth and Boaz, there was like a lot of generations. But really from Ruth and Boaz to David, there's only four. So there's, there's uh, Obed, and then from Obed came Jesse, and then from Jesse came David. So David was the great-grandson of Ruth and Boaz. Now, I don't know about you and your family, but it's hard for me to keep track of much more than great-grandparents. All right, even for me, like, I didn't know any of my great-grandparents. I knew my grandparents pretty well, though. And that's exciting to me because then when I talk to my kids, I can tell them about my grandparents, which is their great-grandparents. I think the same thing probably happened with David. With Jesse's entire family, he had eight sons. I bet when they were around the campfire, they did tell stories about their great-grandparents. And we're here in Christmas season, and we're talking about the royal family. But around this Christmas time, I would love for you to take moments with your family and talk about your history and your family and your legacy, because there's amazing lessons to be learned for good and for bad, probably, in most of our families. I really enjoy talking to my boys about their great-grandfather who was in World War II and was shot down in a plane and parachuted out, made it to safety, and then almost made it back to safety before, to, to his own, kind of his guys, before he was captured. And he was a POW for almost two years Lots of his friends died right around him in that camp. And uh, he persevered and he held on to his faith and he came back to his wife in the panhandle of Texas. And if he hadn't persevered and held on to his faith, the, my kids wouldn't be here. My wife wouldn't be here because her mom wouldn't 
be here. So that story is important to our family, and it's only a few generations ahead, right? And in the same way, I, I tell my kids about their great-grandpa on the other side, who, you know, in 1919 decided to walk across the dance floor and found the prettiest girl in the place and asked her to dance. And I say, look, y'all need to learn from that. When you go to these middle school dances, don't <laughs> lean on the wall like a bunch of, you know, goofballs. Get on over there where those girls are and ask them to dance. Your great-grandpa, if he hadn't done that, you wouldn't be here. <laughs> you gotta tell the stories. Another great-grandpa that conceived a child and, and then bailed and disappeared from the picture. Not proud of that in our history or our legacy, but that's part of it. You know, we all have the ups and the downs and the goods and the bad, and it makes up your story. David's story is the story of these great-grandparents and the great-great-greats that went before that and all the things that kind of cumulative, came, cumulatively came together to make him who he was. So we're gonna take a look at some snapshots from David's life today because the Bible, interestingly enough, describes David in two different places as a man after God's own heart. Now, that's pretty powerful if you ask me. We talk a lot about what you want said at your funeral and what you want on your gravestone and all that, but that, that would be pretty good if, if you were, someone was able to say that about you. If God said that about you specifically, that would be a good thing. So first and foremost, he says it in 1 Samuel. And then in, in the time in history, Saul is the king, and Saul has been incredibly disappointing as a king. He's turned away from God and become independent, tried to do things on his own. And so in this verse, God is saying, but now, Saul, your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's commands. Samuel, God tells Samuel to tell Saul, We're not, you're not gonna be here. You're not long for this job. We found a man who is actually after my own heart. He hadn't even talked to David yet, but that's what's to come. And then David lives his life and all of that happens. And later on in Acts, in the New Testament, it again refers to David in the same way. It says it this way, after removing Saul, God made David their king. God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. And then he explains it a little further. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. We're gonna celebrate Christmas because David did what he did and lived the life the way he did and had the kids that he did that went all the way down to, to get us to where Jesus is. But he was a man after God's own heart because he was willing to do everything God asked him to do. Now, we're gonna find out in the story that he also did a bunch of stuff God didn't ask him to do, which evidently is not a disqualifier for being a man after God's own heart. You're gonna do some stuff God doesn't want you to do in your life. You're gonna make some mistakes. You're gonna take some wrong turns. You're gonna fall off the deep end sometimes. That's okay because you have a God that we will see when you are broken and repentant and you turn back to him that will receive you with open arms. The key to being a man, God after a man's own heart is that you must be willing to do the things God asks you to do, even when they seem confusing, even when it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's important. So a few snapshots. We're gonna go through five. The first snapshot from David's life we're gonna look at is when he was chosen and anointed to be the king. God grabs a hold of Samuel. Samuel was the prophet who was leading Israel before Saul came along. Saul came along, he anointed him king. He screwed things up. And God says, 
to Samuel, quit your moaning and your mourning and get out there and let's find the next king. He says, I'll tell you exactly where to go. I want you to go to the family of Jesse. So that's where we are in the story. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, Samuel has got everything ready and he's headed out to find the family of Jesse to pick the next king. Now, Saul is still the king at the moment, which makes things a little bit tricky because if Saul figures out Samuel's out looking or if he finds out that Jesse's family has the next king, then that's gonna all get you know destroyed and taken away. So there's a lot of kind of diplomacy that has to be going on right now, but Samuel makes the trip. And when he arrived, he saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Now, interestingly enough, if you read it in context, what he saw was this firstborn son of Jesse who was tall and strong and handsome. And he said, this must be the guy. Now, interestingly enough, Samuel had thought the same exact thing when he saw Saul. This big, tall, handsome guy must be the guy. And he picked him, and it was a failure. So you think he would realize there should be different criteria, but he didn't. And honestly, we all kind of fall for the same stuff, you know? The big, tall, handsome, beautiful, successful, with the right clothes and the right lineage, we fall for those people all the time. And there's something to it, historically, in leadership, don't get me wrong. I found out the other day that, you know, William Wallace, the guy from Braveheart, anybody like that movie? Braveheart? Dude was six foot six, pretty tall at a time when the average height for males was five foot six. His sword was between five foot four and five foot six inches long, just his sword alone. So think of the advantage that would give you in battle if your arm's longer and your sword is bigger and you're taller than everybody else, although it seems like you could have hit him with an arrow easier than those other dudes, but <laughs> another story. Yeah, we're just, we're drawn to that. And it's been a mistake from the very beginning, and God points it out through Samuel in the next verse. He says, but the Lord said to Samuel, would you not consider his appearance or his height? For I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You may have heard that verse in different places and illustrating different points, but now you're seeing it in context. In choosing the king who would reign and unite Judah and Israel and take over Jerusalem, God said, quit looking at each other through the outward appearance and find the person with the heart that I need to lead. What if we did that? What if we stopped looking at everything that we see on the outside and started paying attention to what's inside people? How different would our relationships be? How different would our choice of friends be and the people that we choose to invest in? So, he takes the new criteria and he starts going through all of Jesse's kids. There's a bunch of them that I can't pronounce their names of that passed in front of them. The Lord's not chosen that one either. And then Shama passes by and the Lord didn't choose him. And then seven sons in total passed by. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen these. Now, interestingly enough, he thought that was all of them because that was all that got marched in front of him. And so he says to Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Even Jesse didn't even consider his last son, David, to be worthy. He didn't even think he was worthy of putting out in front of him. And Jesse says, well, I do have little Davy. He's out tending the sheep. I guess we can send for him. Let's just rest until he arrives. So they send for little Davy, and he comes up. Davy was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features, but he wasn't maybe as big, wasn't 
It certainly wasn't the firstborn. The Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And then Samuel went on to Ramah. We found the guy. He's been chosen and he's been anointed. David is a powerful image of what Jesus will be in our lives. So there's several things to pull out right here before we move forward, and we'll just go ahead and pull them all out as we look at Jesus, you know, in light of David. First of all, Jesus wasn't maybe probably the biggest or the most handsome or born in the most, you know, cool of circumstances. We're about to celebrate this Savior that was born in a manger, in a lowly circumstance. God's anointed aren't always the most attractive or the ones that we would look to to lead. We also learn from the story of David that, that God's anointed, sometimes the salvation comes through one or a few, and maybe not necessarily many. We see that in the story of Goliath we're gonna look at. We also learn that God's anointed usually go through suffering. Jesus went through suffering. David went through suffering. We finally see that God's anointed have a purpose and a presence for their lives. Why is that important to us? Well, it's because we're studying David first and foremost, but also because the New Testament refers to us as God's anointed. And it doesn't really matter what you look like. It matters what's in your heart. And you will go through hard times, but there is a plan and a purpose, and God's presence will be with you. That's what's promised in the story of David and plays out over and over. The second kind of snapshot from the story of David is probably the most famous and the one most people have heard about, and that's this battle with Goliath in this place where he establishes himself as a warrior. We'll pick it up in the middle of the story. David's still taking care of the sheep, and he goes to visit his older brothers who are actually part of the army, and he brings them some food. In the midst of going to visit them at the battlefront, finds out there's this giant that is taunting God's people, and everyone is scared. And David says this, which I think is worth pulling out. He says to Saul, this is the first conversation he's had with, with Saul, first time they've met appointed new king, chosen king, God that's the king now. David says, I'm surveying the situation. I want you to know that no one needs to lose heart on account of this Philistine because your servant will go and fight him. Let no one lose heart on account. The giants in our lives are designed to cause us to lose heart. And you guys, we are at a time, in a culture, in a place where there are plenty of things out there that are taking the heart away from the folks around us. Anxiety, depression, loneliness, grief, sadness. It's prolific right now. We need to be the people who are saying, we're God's servants. We're not gonna allow you to lose heart in this situation. We're here to bring encouragement. We're here to bring support. We're here to bring presence. We were at Men's Encounter. Jose talked about that last weekend and all these men were there and that was fantastic and it's great to spend that time with men and recharge ourselves. But men, we need to be David's in the people's lives around us. Now with all that that we brought in, we need to be the people saying, I will stand and fight for you and I will do everything in my power to make sure the enemy doesn't allow you to lose heart. That's the kind of guys we need to be with our wives and with our kids and with the people around us. And David does that. Saul replied, you're not able to go against that giant and fight him. You're only a young man and he's been a warrior from his youth. But David said, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And then he kind of gives him his resume. He says, I fought a lion and a bear that were carrying off sheep from the flock and I went after them. And I, I struck him and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. Why would I be scared of that giant? I've already fought 
a whole bunch of wild animals. Cody has this buddy that plays football and basketball with him that is about five foot nothing. And he is the toughest kid. He rides bulls like all the time. Like that's what he does. He's really good at riding bulls. And Cody's like, why would he be scared of any linebacker coming at us or any running back coming at us? He rides bulls. I'm like, well, that makes sense. That's what's going on right here in this story. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. David wasn't unafraid because of his amazing ability to throw a slingshot. David was unafraid because he knew the Lord was on his side and he had amazing faith. You've been chosen, you've been anointed. You need to have the faith of David to accomplish the tasks that are before you. Third snapshot from the life of David is that he does become king. And there's a lot of trials. Saul comes after after that. David slays Goliath. Everything is great, but Saul notices that the people are starting to really look at David with reverence and he gets jealous and he comes after him and he tries to kill him in multiple times in multiple ways and sends folks after him. But eventually David does become king. Uh, He conquers his enemies and he takes Jerusalem. There's lots of verses about this. There's a really fascinating story about Jonathan who was Saul's son who becomes best friends with David and, and looks up to him and humbly serves him. But just for the sake of time, we'll look at a few of these verses from 2 Samuel where it kind of explains that David has become the king. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king of Israel. David, the people saw. They said, we, we get that Saul was our leader, but really you were the one out there doing the battles. You were the one fighting. And it was because of that he earned their respect. And so he became their king. And it goes on to say, David was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. In Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So there was a couple, there was 12 tribes Um, of God's people, and and then they kind of clumped into two clusters, Judah and Israel, and David eventually became king of all of those. That's what it's saying right there in the scripture. And this is pretty significant historically. It says, the king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. I mean, that's like early trash talk right there. (laughs) You're not getting in our city. We got some blame, some blind lame folks that could fight you off. They thought David cannot get in here. I guess they didn't hear about the whole Goliath thing. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. This is where David historically established his Jerusalem as the kind of leading center for Israel and God's people. He moves the Ark of the Covenant from Judah to Jerusalem. This is in about 1,000 years B.C., 1,000 B.C., somewhere along in there. So for three 3,000 years ago, Jerusalem was the the center of of Israel. That's got a lot of historical significance. Again, ton of stuff we can unpack. We're gonna move past that, though, and look at the fourth point, snapshot from David's life. David sins with lust, lying, murder, and his own independence. 
This is the part where David becomes human. The part where we realize that, you know, just like everybody else, David had his issues. And it happens so frequently in life where we start out and we are chosen and we are called and we start to understand our dependence on the Lord and we accept Jesus, his salvation. And then we start to have some success in using our gifts and talents in the world. And then the enemy comes along and convinces us that he's not really, it's you, it's your talent, it's your ability that's got you all this success. Let me show you all the things and all the blessings and benefits you should get because of those gifts that you have. And we start to stray away from God. And that is exactly what happened to David. We'll look at some of these Verses, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back to him, the woman, then she went back home, sorry. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. All right, David makes a huge misstep, incredibly sinful behavior in this moment. And it's worth just pausing because we got a lot of men here in the room and looking at how many chances he could have gotten off of this path. Because this idea of, of adultery, this idea of you know, being unfaithful to your, to your marriage vows is unfortunately so prolific in our culture today that I am gonna pause and, and, and take a look at this for just a second because there's always a way out. The first thing in the, in the little narrative, there's only a few verses here, you guys. It says, he was on the roof and he saw a woman bathing. All right, we've just hit the caution zone right here. Now, I don't know, unless you poke your eyeballs out, I don't know how you're gonna go through a day without seeing something unhealthy or inappropriate in our culture today. So nothing bad has happened yet, but it's definitely a caution flag should go up, right? At that moment, he could have just gone back down and gone back to bed. He could have gone down and turned a lamp on and read something. He could have, you know, gone for a jog. I don't know what all David could do, but there was a lots of ways off right here. But instead of doing any of those, it says he continued to look at her and realized that she was very beautiful. Okay, Super caution at this point. Not only is she over there bathing, she's actually really beautiful. I should get off right here, take the off ramp. He chooses not to do that. Instead, he sends someone to find out about her. Okay, still bad, but not, not totally because the person comes back and says, hey, she's married, don't wanna mess with her. Okay, we're still okay. Another off ramp, another chance to get off, but he doesn't. Instead, he goes past that caution flag too and he sends for her. Now she's in his presence. And I gotta believe that he was feeling some conviction. Oh my goodness, this married woman, this beautiful woman is now in my presence. One more chance to get off. One more chance to get out of this situation. But again, he passes that up and he chooses to go ahead and sleep with her. You guys, God will always give you a way out of temptation, but you have to be willing to walk toward it toward the way out. You gotta be willing to take that step because if over and over and over again, you say no, when he gives you a lifeline, eventually the enemy will prevail. And we see that happen right here in David's life. So that's pretty bad, but then David decides to go ahead and compound that error by saying, well, the best thing probably for me to do at this point is to get rid of her husband. 
So we skip down a few verses in the same chapter. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, who was kind of the leader of his army, and sent it with Uriah, who was Bathsheba's husband. And in it, he wrote, now, obviously, Uriah was a pretty dedicated soldier because he didn't even read the note that David sent with him because if he did, he probably would have turned around because it said, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Kind of sophisticated plot to get rid of the husband of the person that you've just um, done inappropriate things with, and it works. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, he did die. She mourned of him after the time of mourning was over. David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. I put this part in here. We could have read this whole chapter, but I put this last part in here because I want you to see the last sentence. See what it says, David. What David had done displeased the Lord. Why is that important? Because on one hand, we're talking about this man who was a God, a, a, a man who was after God's own heart, and I want you to understand that he still did things that were displeasing to the Lord. News flash: you do things that displease the Lord. You do. All of you do. I do. We do. We, contrary to what the culture will tell you, you are not accepted in everything you do, in every sin you commit, in every act that you do wrong, in every choice you make that's offline. No, some of that stuff displeases the Lord because it's dishonoring to him and it's bad for you. And yet, we can still be people after his own heart because he is so forgiving and he is so loving. And this is the part of the story in David's life where we realize that God is bigger than us. And he's not swept away in a tide of emotion and getting his feelings hurt when we make mistakes. He's loving and redeeming. And David shows us the exact formula of how to get there in the fifth snapshot from his story. David shows that he's willing to be broken, repentant, and seeking of God's righteousness consistently in Scripture. Those 73 Psalms tell this story over and over again. In Psalm 51, we see a picture of his brokenness. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. That's usually the formula when we mess up is that we've gotta go through a period of brokenness where we recognize, man, I don't like myself. I don't like what I did. I, that's not the person I wanna be. I've hurt the folks around me significantly. And we've gotta feel that brokenness. And then that brokenness needs to lead us to repentance, which David again models in this Psalm 139, where he says, Lord, search me. There's some kind of fear and anxiousness in me that's caused me to do many things that are contrary to who you made me to be and what you want for my life. Let me know what offensive ways are in me so that I can acknowledge those and turn those over to you and turn toward a more everlasting path. Brokenness followed by repentance that's then followed up by this love for God's word and his truth and his righteousness. The entire Psalm 119, my mother-in-law sent me this this morning, and um, this entire Psalm, and just, shows David's love for God, his word, and his truth. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek 
him with all their heart. They do no wrong, but follow his ways. Man, trust me, David knew what he was writing about from experience here. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. God's word was convicting David, and he felt put to shame because of the ways he had violated that, but he loved God's word. And he goes on to say, I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? Man, this is a rhetorical question based out of his own life experience. And he says, by living according to your word, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. David loved God's word and the stage of his life after independence and lying and manipulation and killing and adultery, he recognized that God's word and obedience to that word was the only path to hell. How do I wholeheartedly pursue you, Lord, and your law? And that's why at the end of the story, David is considered a man after God's own heart. If we look at the timeline of his life, because if you do decide, you know, in your spare time this afternoon to read 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Corinthians, all those things, don't. Go do something fun. Think about Christmas. But if you did, it would kind of be a little confusing because it doesn't lay it necessarily out in chronological order, but this chart does. You can kind of see some of the things. So he was born around 1040 B.C., uh, around, man, sometime between 11 and 13-ish. He was anointed to be king by Samuel, uh, about, you know, later teen years, he killed Goliath. He was a musician for a while, for Saul. I mean, he was a true Renaissance man, poet, musician, warrior, shepherd, king, leader. 30 years old, he was made king of Judah. 37, he was king of Israel as well. They conquered Jerusalem, built the temple. We didn't even cover any of that. Bathsheba was in there. Solomon was born. We didn't cover that. That's further on in the lineage. And uh, then he ended up dying um, at 70 years old after 40 years of leadership. Let's put those five points on the board and we'll just kind of look at this toward the end of the message because it is a story of David and it is a perfect picture of the first several of God and his reign through Jesus and salvation. But it's also a story for us. So I want you to try to find yourself in these five points. Because the reality is, you were knit together in your mother's womb with gifts and talents that will make a difference in the world. You were chosen by God from the beginning. That's true of you. And, and the second point is that, you, like David, you're gonna face suffering. In this world, you will have trouble. Things are gonna be hard from time to time. There are giants that will come against you, and you will have to choose faith in God to persevere or some worldly way to try to cope with what's going on. David became king. You are a child of God with the ability to have dominion over certain things that he's placed before you, a family maybe, you know, a, a workplace, a, a group of people, and, and you have dominion and reign over that, and you need to decide how you're gonna lead in that place that you're in. If you're in high school or middle school and you're listening to me right now, you have these gifts and talents and you have dominion over that. You have the ability to rule over those. You need to think about how do I best use these gifts and talents and resources? And then you need to understand that 
you will fall short because we all do. I really feel like I was harsh earlier when I said that you guys all, but I said something really mean to y'all. I'm sorry. I really am. I felt like that was harsh. What did I say? We all, uh, yeah, we all disappoint. Yeah, we all, we all do that. Sorry, I didn't mean that. Y'all all actually really please him as well, according to the Bible. Um, but we will probably disappoint him at some point. We will fall short because we're human in this fallen world. But if we do like David and we turn back to God with brokenness and repentance and a love for his word, things are gonna look very different. Choose for this day who you're gonna serve. See, a lot of us, uh, man, some of us haven't yet made God, made Jesus our savior. And if you haven't, this is a good time. It's a good time to do it because the blessings that come from that and being you know, anointed uh, as a child of God, following him are so amazing. But there are a lot of us in the room that have t- taken the time to make him uh, our savior, but we're not choosing to make him our Lord on a daily basis. And, and that difference is that making him your Lord means that daily you're waking up going, Lord, what do you want from me today? What do you need from me today? What do you expect from me today? How do I use the gifts that you've given me? And if you walk that out, then we're looking a lot closer to that person after God's own heart. Matter of fact, when we look at David's life, these four characteristics show up over and over again. And I think they're why God is able to say that about him. First and foremost, uh, man, David had an absolute faith in God to be willing. I, I don't, man, sheep are not worth going to fight a lion. They're just not, I mean, or a bear. They're, I mean, it's, no, there's a bunch of more sheep. Let's take care of these. But even that is a metaphor in itself of Jesus chasing after the one. But he, David did that because he had faith. He fought that giant because he had faith. He went into so many battles because of his faith in God to deliver. Said it in Psalm 119, pointed out that he had a love for God's law and his word. He was absolutely repentant. Psalm 51 told us that in lots of other places. And then finally, we didn't cover much of this, but David was filled with gratitude. A lot of those Psalms talk about his thankfulness, entering his courts with thanksgiving, praise, thankfulness, and gratitude. Those characteristics are what we need to cultivate in our own lives so that we can be described as people after God's own heart. Let's learn from these guys and their mistakes and their successes so that we can look more like that in our own lives, especially this Christmas season. Let's pray.